Welcome to Bluegrass Stories with Howard Parker and me, I'm Katie Daly. Ira Gitlin is known throughout the Bluegrass and Roots music world as an artist, writer, composer, scholar, and educator. Howard Parker starts their conversation by asking, where did it all start for Ira Gitlin? Oh boy, yeah, well, um, I keep thinking of that old um, salsa commercial. I grew up in New York City, you know, and then everybody goes, New York City, well, yeah, um, middle-class family, um, grew up in a single-family house out in Queens. And my parents always thought that, you know, music was part of a, a kid's education, so they made sure that we we all had music lessons at some point. And I started out by taking folk guitar lessons at a local Y, group classes. And music just always made sense to me, so I, I stayed with it, took private lessons, and I had a, a, a best friend in junior high school who I used to hang out with and play guitars. And I remember him, uh, him telling me about, he had seen this scene on like the Tonight Show, you know, how the people who were involved in movies would go around to the, make the rounds of the talk shows. And it was some of the people involved in Deliverance, you know, which had just come out, this was 72 or 73. And uh, he described the dueling banjos scene. And I remember what he said, he said, and you know, and they play that, they play, you know, that fast, that fast music that has a banjo in it. And it's funny because I had never heard the word bluegrass, but as soon as he said that in my mind, I knew what he meant because I had heard it, you know, I'd seen episodes of the Beverly Hillbillies, probably by that point we were hearing it in TV commercials. And I thought, yeah, yeah. And, and when I, when I saw the movie, which was one of the first real grown up movies I saw, it really, you know, that was a, it's a powerful movie and it's a powerful scene. And one of the things in retrospect that makes it powerful is that that scene represents this kind of culture clash between these suburbanites who are going on this canoe trip and the people who actually live in the mountains. And that the one thing that they have in common is the music that they play. So, you know, having played guitar, I, um, I started, you know, I went to the library and I got out the Pete Seeger book and I made myself a crude banjo out of a cookie tin and scrap wood. And that was all I had for about the first year I was playing. It was a bit unplayable, but you know, what did I know? And so how old, how old were you at the, at this time? Were you in elementary school or junior high? I, or? A bit older. I was, um, I think I was just entering ninth grade. It was the summer before ninth grade, as I recall, or summer before 10th grade. That was it. Gotcha. And and uh, where where did it go from there? So were were you caught up also in the uh, in the uh, folk boom of the late sixties, seventies uh, time frame? Or is I think I was just a little bit too young for that. I was born in nineteen fifty eight, but my best friend's older sister was a couple of years older, and she kind of caught the tail end of that. And she had all these records by um, you know uh, Peter Paul and Mary, uh, Tom Paxton, Phil Oaks. And we would sit in his basement and listen to his big sister's records and learn the chords off of them and, you know, play around with that stuff. So we kind of got that second hand, I think. And uh, through high school, you you continued with this uh, folk type music, uh, the interest in folk or, or 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 did you really get into bluegrass in high school? No, I was I was a little bit into bluegrass, but I wasn't you know, I wasn't really plugged into the scene. And New York has had a really strong bluegrass scene ever since the 1950s, you know, when um, the older generation of folkies, you know, were playing in Washington Square Park every Sunday. But I didn't know about that. 
And it wasn't until a few years later that I started getting more, you know, more focused on bluegrass. It was like there were people our age playing. Like, I don't know if you know Arnie Solomon. Yeah, who lived in the D.C. area for a while. Well, he was from Brooklyn. And I remember at some point hearing about this kid my age from Brooklyn, you know, who was a whiz on the mandolin. But I never, you know, I never really sought it out that much. A few things. I remember um, Doug Tuckman in the Bluegrass Club of New York was, um, he was promoting bluegrass concerts in various places. And I remember going to a bunch of them down at the South Street Seaport in lower Manhattan. It's right in the shadow of the Brooklyn Bridge. And now it's this whole upscale, you know, uh, gentrified thing. But back then it was this really downscale thing. And there was this, you know, pier with these old ships and the fish market was right there and the restaurants that closed at seven o'clock at night because they mostly did business at lunchtime for the Wall Street crowd. You know, so it was really, it was, you know, you were going into this dodgy part of town and going out onto this pier. And I remember seeing Ted Lundy and Bob Paisley and the Southern Mountain Boys. And then at the opposite pole, because, you know, those guys, as anybody who knows Danny Paisley now, that was, you know, hardcore traditional bluegrass. And at the opposite pole, right around the same time, I remember seeing the Wretched Refuse String Band, which was kind of the, um, the lunatic fringe of New York bluegrass. Great musicians, you know, they didn't really have a stable band membership. They were just sort of a floating roster that would get drawn on for whatever gig. Richie Schulberg was the uh, fiddle player, was the, the ringleader of that. But, you know, Andy Statman would play with them. Tony Trishko or Marty Cutler on banjo. Um, Bob Jones, not probably not as well known outside the New York area, but he was a, you know, a hot guitar player. And um, I think he also did instrument repair. I'm trying to, oh, uh, Matt Glazer, Kenny Kosek would show up on fiddles. It was uh, totally eclectic. And so those are the two opposite poles of my early bluegrass experience. And I've been sort of trying to negotiate that tension ever since. Were you also um, sort of mastering guitar through through high school before you entered uh, college, or were you pretty accomplished by the time you got to uh, college age? No, it was it was a similar kind of deal where I you know I played, I learned a lot of stuff, but I never really focused on it. I, I picked up a lot of stuff um, that I knew and understood, but not necessarily that I could execute. Um, big deal for me in college was uh, one of my best friends in college was um, this guy, Charlie McGovern, who's now a history professor at William and Mary, one of the best musicians just, you know, in his personal musical endowment that I've, that I've ever known. And just hanging out with him and playing with him and trying to play in a band with him. You know, I learned a lot more about what was possible on the guitar just from, from hanging with him. Yeah, so of course, uh, due to your interest, n newfound interest in bluegrass and guitar, I'm sure you pursued uh, studies in Appalachian music when you uh, when you hit college, right? Wrong. <laughs> you knew that was a leading question, didn't you? Yes, I did. <laughs> no, I was. Um, I thought I might major in math, and um, at some point, it turned out that I didn't really have that deep down intuitive grasp of it, even though I could understand it, but. Um, I ended up majoring in ancient Greek. Um, I've always had a kind of a, a flair for language, I guess, or some kind of ability. And um, I wanted to take Latin, 
because at that time, there were very few high schools were, were still teaching Latin in the 70s. And I thought, I'm in college now. I can take all that stuff that educated people have been taking throughout the centuries, but Latin at the same time as physics. So I took Greek instead, and I really got to like it. But, uh, but you did pursue your, your musical adventures through, through college. Well, yes, but strictly on an extracurricular basis. I never took any, any formal studies in music at all, really. From what I've been able to observe, you've always had this, um, this thing where on, on, on the one hand, you're, you're plugged into um, a music genre, actually several genres that I'm, uh, I'm aware of that, that are more in the, what I'll call the folk tradition for lack of mm -hmm. anything better, versus a, a, a very formal a very formal and studied ap approach to the music as as well almost a classic what i would think would be a classic approach to the to the music and the history of the music yeah i guess you could say that um you know on one level music theory always made sense to me i mean some, a lot of it even before i i knew the terminology for it i remember before i started playing guitar just sitting at, at our piano we had in our house and trying out different things and getting to notice what it sounded like when a note was two notes away or three notes away, or, you know, playing different kinds of scales and, and chords, um, you know, just, just messing around. So at that level, the level of understanding what's going on within music, that was always a part of the way I, I processed it. Um, and just, you know, I'm, I'm a trivia kind of guy. I, I, I read stuff, I remember stuff, I know stuff, I have a, a sense of history. Um, and so that all played into my understanding of music as well. I don't know if that really answers what you asked about. Well, it, it, it does. I mean, I, I'm also aware of, of a writing I, I, think that, um, I think that you were responsible for. I'm pretty sure I lifted this off of your website. And, and let me quote you this paragraph, which is okay. sort of on the, on the long thing you are. This is another one of those leading leading paragraphs, uh, and I quote here: "It says, uh, it says that that same year in uh, Gilbert Rose's intermediate Greek class, I learned about the formulaic diction that had enabled illiterate ancient Greek bards to improvise the narrative poems that evolved into Homer's Iliad and Odyssey." And then you went on to compare that complex system to bluegrass music and the way that bluegrass music is structured. Yeah, um, I had a feeling that was what you were gonna talk about. That was one of my great insights that I came up with on my own and then found out that somebody else had already come up with it several years earlier. And someone uh, fairly well-known as a, as a scholar. Yeah, Tom Adler, who's trained as a folklorist and has done scholarly work within the bluegrass and country music world. Um, yeah, uh, that, and that, by the way, that was written for my college alumni bulletin. They used to have a, a feature where they would talk to alumni who had done interesting things with their lives and just get them to write something about how they ended up doing what they were doing. Yeah, the idea here is that the Iliad and the Odyssey and a bunch of other lesser poems use language in a way that's very different from the way any subsequent poetry works. And anybody who's read a little bit of this, you know, in translation in high school will know that, you know, there were these repeated phrases like a rosy fingered dawn is a really famous one, you know, there's this, um, or 
um, swift-footed Achilles or Agamemnon, the shepherd of the people. Um, and in the early 20th century, uh, an American scholar did some very important work where he demonstrated that, well, for example, there's a bunch of ways that Homer refers to Achilles. He's swift-footed Achilles, or he's Achilles, son of Peleus, or he's uh, godlike Achilles, and there's a couple others, I think. And what he showed was that the poet doesn't call him swift-footed when his speed is relevant to the story at that point, doesn't call him son of Peleus when his ancestry is important on his father's side, or godlike when his ancestry on his mother's side is relevant. Instead, he's called swift-footed Achilles when the poet gets to the end of the line, has to say who is performing the action and has da 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 that much rhythm to fill, podas opus Achilleus. And he's son of Peleus when it's da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And it's godlike Achilles when he's only got, he's only got da-da-da-da-da-da. So these are licks that the ancient poets developed that would fit particular places in the kind of rhythm that they used. And the way this, this scholar analyzed all of this and he concluded that this must have been, this system must have evolved over several generations. It's too involved for one person to make it up. It must have evolved over generations to facilitate improvisation. Mm-hmm. And that's the way I'm most familiar with analyzing bluegrass banjo this way, but you could, I'm sure you could talk to fiddle players and flat pickers and, you know, they could point to analogous things in their own, in their own instruments, um, where we get to the end of the line and uh, see if I had a banjo here, I, I could play this, but it's, it's upstairs, two flights up. Um, anyway, you, the banjo player gets to the end of the line, it comes back to the G chord and he plays this lick that goes, you know, and if I played it on the banjo, everybody would recognize it. Here's, here's the really interesting thing. Going back to Homer, this guy, was, this, this scholar was saying, imagine you're like a little kid in ancient Greece and you're listening to people recite these poems and they're improvising them in real time. And he says, like, maybe the first time you hear the phrase swift-footed Achilles, you think, yeah, yeah, he was a really fast runner. And maybe the 10th time you think that. By the thousandth time you've heard it in your life, all that registers is he's talking about Achilles. But, <laughs> but it's got that flavor of heroic poetry. And it's kind of the same thing with bluegrass. An experienced listener hears that lick at the end of the line. And what does he really think? He thinks, ah, it's just, there's that G note that the, the melody ends on, but it's got this decoration that's, you know, that makes it bluegrass. Also analogous to like a Jimmy Martin G run at the end of a phrase? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's like, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't sound right without it, but it's not the, the essential meaning of, of that um, that little passage of music. <laughs> well, so y- when when did the banjo come into the picture for Ira Gitlin? I started um, getting interested in banjo uh, the summer between ninth and tenth grade. I had seen the movie Deliverance 
you know, a very powerful movie with that powerful dueling banjo scene. And, um, oh, I, I remember I was, there was a guy I knew from summer camp. And I remember shortly after I saw Deliverance, he was playing dueling banjos and on the banjo, he had a banjo. And this is really interesting to me because this is not the way I normally think, but I remember thinking I play guitar as well as he does. So if he can play banjo, I bet I can too. <laughs> and since I didn't have a banjo and I didn't have any money, I, I built this crude homemade banjo out of a, a cookie tin and scrap wood and went to the library and got the Pete Seeger book. And um, in some music store, I saw that Warner Brothers had put out tablature to uh, dueling banjos. And it's, it's really interesting. I'd actually love to, to write something on this maybe for Banjo Newsletter, but the guitar part is very accurate. The banjo part is wildly inaccurate. Things that no banjo player would ever do, but if you, hear, if you know bluegrass and you hear the recording, you know instantly what that lick is. And that tells me that the tablature was prepared by a guitar player who knew how the banjo was tuned and knew about thumb index and middle fingers picking, but really didn't know the style. Mm. And I've, I've transcribed a bunch of things off of recordings and I know how easy it is to be led astray, to think you hear one note when you hear another, uh, you know, to think it's happening on one string when it's another. So I, that's gotta be what's happened. And there's even a few cases there where if you flip around two notes, if you switch around when he plays the fifth string and when he plays the first string, you end up with something that might really, you know, somebody might really do. Um, yeah, so that's something I, that's something on my, my to-do list for um, bluegrass scholarship, I guess. <laughs> so you were, you were at that time, a, a dual instrumentalist through, through your, uh, your first degree and on to, uh, on, on to your, your secondary degree, or, or did you add uh, more instruments along, on, uh, along the way? Well, when I was in college, I, I picked up bass. I mean, look, I knew, I knew that the bass is tuned like the lower four strings of the guitar. And a friend of mine had an electric bass, and I remember sitting in with some people whose bass player hadn't showed up. There was, um, and, and at some point I tried the upright bass, which, you know, has no frets and is a lot bigger, but for anybody who wants to try it, any, any of you guitar players out there, it's pretty damn forgiving because the, the distance, the length of the string is so big that if you're an eighth of an inch off, it's not that big a deal. Eighth of an inch on the fiddle is, is a deal breaker, but on the bass, you can, you know, you can, you can fudge things a little easier. And I was surprised at how well I did on this upright bass when I tried it. And um, so that, that was kind of something I would occasionally do throughout uh, college. Actually, someone had made notice of your bass playing in college. Let, let, let me quote you. Uh, let me quote you uh, something that someone sent me. It says, uh, uh, I will add this. I met Ira on my very first day of college. The first time I saw him, he was on stage at the college amphitheater playing electric bass. I thought he was incredibly cool. Ah, uh, yes, I know. I know who said that. <laughs> so was Ira Gitlin incredibly cool back then? Ira Gitlin back then thought he was. So you uh, you, you graduated um, and, um, and went on uh, for a... Uh, uh, 
uh, a gra graduate degree in classical studies, another bluegrass oriented uh, uh, degree. What was uh, what was classical studies, and uh, and how did that affect uh, how you uh, how you were viewing the music? Well, classical studies is Greek and Latin. You know, the language, the literature, the history, every aspect of of the cultures. And um, one of the main things that did for me was convince me that I wasn't cut out to be an academic. Um, but then, there, but there were several things, important things for me that happened during those years I was at um, University of Pennsylvania in that program. Um, one of the most important was, um, I went to see one of the very earliest performances of the band Tony Trishka and Skyline. In fact, I don't think they'd even chosen the name Skyline yet, but um, there was a church on, um, on campus that had regular folk music concerts. And I heard that Tony Trishka had a new band and they were, um, they were playing there and I went. And that was, that one night was a turning point in my life because it just, it just utterly bowled me over. It was like, this has gotta be the most glorious thing to do. You know, and it was it was not just it was the whole thing. It was certainly Tony's banjo playing, which has always been inspirational. Dee Dee Wyland singing. She, um, you know, she had I guess come east from Milwaukee the the year before probably, and um, you know, and they formed the band with her in it. And the arrangements that the band did very complex, so called progressive bluegrass band, and their bass player Larry Cohen. It was a genius arranger. Some, so it appealed, you know, it appealed to my visceral sense. It appealed to my intellectual sense. And I just thought, man, that'd be so cool to be doing that. And this happening at a time when I was getting more and more discouraged about uh, graduate school. So you could see how those two things mm -hmm. would interact. <laughs> and then the other thing was I met a fellow who uh, was in a, an interesting way kind of influential for me a guy named Tom Cook. He's an attorney, lives in Pennsylvania. I forget, I think he might be more like York or Harrisburg now, but he was a mandolin player and he had a really high, powerful voice, a real tenor voice. And I became friends with him and it was through him that I started getting a better idea of who was who and what was what in bluegrass, what was and wasn't traditional, uh, who some of the important people were. Like from him, I first heard about Dave Evans and Joe Val, people like that, and the Johnson Mountain Boys. In fact, it was with, I tagged along with him to go hear the Johnson Mountain Boys at this place in the Philadelphia suburbs, 81 or 82, probably 82. And um, that, was, that was really powerful to see them in a you know, little bar where you're right up close to the band. You, know, you, can, you can picture that, I imagine. At what point in time did, did basically you decide um, and what motivated you to decide if such a decision was made to basically focus on the music and uh, I wouldn't say abandon your your classical studies but basically make music your career well I as, as for grad school I just kind of um, I got to the end of my second year I took my master's exams which normally is just a something you do on the way to getting a PhD but I took the master's exam, got the master's degree and, and left grad school. And I went back to New York and um, had a job for a while. Um, 
And at one point I was talking to, it was either Tom Cook or it might've been Steve Arkin, who as some of, some of you may know, Steve is a banjo player. He started out as a bluegrass player. He's more into old time now. He actually played with Mon Monroe, Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys for the, I think it was the summer of 1964 maybe, or maybe 63, I'm not sure. Um, but anyway, I used to run into him in New York City at, at bluegrass shows. And I was talking to either him or Tom Cook, I don't remember which. And it was this kind of Socratic conversation where whoever I was talking to drew me out and made me realize that the only thing I was really interested in doing was music. Through an ad in Bluegrass Unlimited, back when classified ads were a much bigger deal than they were um, after the internet took over, um, I ended up playing bass for a summer with a traditional band in upstate New York, Bristol Mountain Bluegrass. And that was, that was really kind of interesting. I had never been to a bluegrass festival. First bluegrass festival I ever went to, I was actually playing at it. I apparently was not really that good a bass player back then. I remember having discussions with the guys in the band about it, but you know, they needed a bass player. And I, sh I sure learned a lot from being in the band, not just about music and about, you know, the, the social circles that bluegrass has going, going on in it, but also just about dealing with people, you know, both in and out of the musical environment. And I remember seeing a bunch of, you know, we'd play at festivals and, you know, we'd play at a festival with Ralph Stanley or with, um, Bob Paisley or Bill Harrell or Whetstone Run or, you know, various, some of, some of the bands were, you know, a lot of the bands in our circuit were more regional bands, but some really good ones. And then uh, jumping forward a little bit, I think, uh, you eventually found your way to the Washington, D.C. area at a time where I think D.C. was probably still referred to as the bluegrass capital of the world. How, how'd, you, how'd you get to D.C.? Well, you know, I knew, I knew that there was a lot of bluegrass in D.C. I mean, I knew that just from, you know, knowing about the seldom scene and the country gentlemen and the Johnson Mountain Boys and Bill Harrell, you know. I knew there was a scene there, but also I had a few friends from college who were down that way. Um, a, a friend of mine, Ruth Goldberg, who um, I used to perform with in college, and um, a woman I was seeing at the time who's not a musician. And also my friend, Charlie McGovern, he was working at the Smithsonian at the time. And I knew from them about a little bit about what the scene was like down here, that it was, it was pretty lively, that whatever level you were at, if you were a rank beginner, if you were a, a weekend warrior, if you were a professional player, there, was, there were other people that you could be playing with. And I didn't get that sense in New York. New York had a good scene, but I don't think it was as, as wide ranging or at least wasn't as far as I knew. And then Ruth also, she was volunteering at WAMU. So I knew a lot about WAMU really being a um, kind of a central institution in, in the DC bluegrass world. You know, back before the internet, people would call into the bluegrass bulletin board hotline to find out who was playing where. Mm -hmm. You know, if you wanted to hear the latest recordings, you know, you would listen to Lee Michael Dempsey for maybe for the more progressive stuff and um, Ray Davis or Jerry Gray for the more traditional stuff, you know, and there was bluegrass on the air six and a half hours every weekday at the time I moved down. And I, it was a while before I found, found a part-time jobs 
and I would stay in my apartment and listen to bluegrass for six hours every day. And that really did a lot for my understanding of who was on the scene, what the history of it was, you know, what the different bands and different players sounded like. Um, I really give AMU a lot of credit for it. If anybody thinks I know a lot about bluegrass, it's largely due to two things, WAMU and Neil Rosenberg. And, and so you, you, you eventually um, ingratiated yourself in, into the music scene and, and over a period of time developed a well-earned reputation for being a, uh, an excellent u- utility player on, on all of those three instruments, perhaps even more that, that I'm, I'm not aware of. And, uh, and even though I'm probably loathe to, to name dropping, I mean, o- over the years, y- you did either uh, short-term or longer-term stints with Dee uh, Dee uh, Wylan, who you still have a relationship with, with uh, her latest band, uh, Big Howdy, but you also played for, you know, occasionally at least with uh, JMB and Pat and Pending and the Travelers and Bill Harrell and... Uh, no, and... I never played with the Travelers. I, okay. I, but Bill Harrell, I played uh, banjo with him for the whole summer of 1999, which was which was great to play with somebody with that kind of deep history in, in Washington bluegrass. Um, other great thing about that band was getting to stand on stage next to Carl Nelson. He was a wonderful fiddle player. And a lot of times, and you know, you're always supposed to be looking at the front man, you know, when he's singing, but my head would whip around. It's like, wow, what was that leak that Carl just did? The wonderful guy. Quick um, Carl Nelson. Didn't Bill refer to him as quick Carl Nelson? I, I don't remember that, but patent pending, I played bass with them for a year and a half, 19, in 1990 and 1991, when um, after, after Lee Taylor left the band. Uh, Johnson Mountain Boys, that was, that was an absolute peak experience, and that was just as a fill-in. Mm-hmm. You know, as people may know, they stopped playing full-time in early 1988, but within about a year, they were back doing a much more limited schedule and in 1994, they occasionally needed people to fill in on bass. And, um, you know, I just knew them from, from the local circuit and they knew I played bass. Um, so they tapped me to do a 4th of July thing down at the Sylvan Theater. So I say my working audition with them was, uh, you know, live over national public radio with an audience of thousands. Um, but I guess I did well enough that, you know, they, they hired me for a few more fill-in gigs that summer. And that is, you know, that's like the feather in my bluegrass cap, one of my favorite bands ever. And if anybody is listening to this and has not heard the Johnson Mountain Boys, just go, go on to um, YouTube and look for any, well, I mean, anything you're going to see from them is going to be great, but especially where the thumbnail photos are very orangey. That's from their, what at the time was thought to be their farewell concert back in 1988. And it's fantastic and also very well filmed by WETA television. Yeah, that was the, um, uh, I know that the entirety of, of the Luckett's show is now available on, uh, on YouTube. Uh, it's, it's a, just a, an amazing performance. Yeah, it's two and a quarter hours long. It, uh, a fellow named Greg Law, who's, too young to have seen the Johnson Mountain Boys when they were actually together, um, got it from one of the retired WETA people who gave him a DVD of the unedited concert, and it's uh, it's great. I wanted I wanted to uh, spend a, a 
fairly good chunk of time and talk about your role as a bluegrass um, uh, educator. I know that that you're involved with um, quite a few programs. Let, let me just name several, and, and I'm probably leaving leaving something out. Uh, Kids Academy at, at a number of festivals. I know Joe Val. I know Delaware Valley. Uh, uh, I'm not sure if uh, Gettysburg, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, I'm aware of your work with the uh, with the Wernick method, and and I wanted to touch base on on that. And of course, your 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 private lessons. Um, which what what do you want to discuss first? Well, you know, they're all different different expressions of the same thing try, you know, trying to communicate my enthusiasm for music and trying to get other people to understand it in whatever way they can. Um, there, oh, there's another, another uh, Kids Academy. You're, you mentioned the three that I actually run as the music director, but I'm also, for years, I've been a banjo instructor at the uh, Bluegrass Academy for Kids at the Great Fox Festival. At least in the eastern United States, that's kind of the daddy of them all. Brian Wickland put that program together. And the ones, the other ones that I do are pretty much just following the model that Brian came up with back, back around 2000 or thereabouts. And by the way, for, uh, forgive me for, uh, for interrupting. Uh, I, I left one important one out that also I wanted to touch base on uh, perhaps in a little bit, which is the uh, Augusta Heritage uh, Bluegrass Week. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. Like I say, these are all different expressions of the, the idea that, you know, you, you share your knowledge with other people who, who want to improve their skills. And um, I started teaching private lessons. Tony Furtado, great banjo player, great guitar player, lived in, in this area in the mid-90s, and he was teaching at House of Musical Traditions. And I would take over his students when he was on the road and, you know, couldn't teach regularly. And then when he moved out of the area, they took House of Musical Traditions, the music store in Tacoma Park, took me on as their bluegrass banjo instructor. And I don't know how effective I was back then, but I think, I think I've gotten better over the years. I've, you know, found out what works, what doesn't work. And to me, an interesting thing about teaching is... Um, you know, the people who teach, one of the reasons they're teaching is because they've gotten to the point where they, they understand what they're doing. A lot of times it's hard to put yourself in the mindset of somebody who doesn't have that understanding. You know, and uh, many times there are things that just seem absolutely basic and essential to me. And it becomes clear that my student has no idea what I'm talking about. And it's, you know, it's kind of like writing, you know, you're writing an article like the article you quoted before, I was writing that for an audience that didn't know bluegrass. And you have to know what do these people know? What can we expect them to know? And what can't we expect them to know? And what you can't expect them to know, you have to, you have to spell out. If I'm writing for Bluegrass Unlimited and I want to say something about Bill Monroe, I just mentioned Bill Monroe because I know every reader of that magazine is going to, you know, is going to know who that is. If I'm writing for anything outside of the bluegrass world, I have to at least say something like, you know, the father of bluegrass, Bill Monroe, you know, or Grand Ole Opry star Bill Monroe or whatever, you know, something to let them know where he fit, who was who this guy I just mentioned. And I remember um, when I first started reading Bluegrass Unlimited, I was reading a, a, an ad for Stelling Banjos. And there was one of their models, I forget which one, that little Roy Lewis, 
had suggested the name for. And this ad was saying, and little Roy himself dubbed it the whatever. I forget if it was the bellflower or something like that. And I remember reading that and thinking, I have no idea who this little Roy guy is, but whoever wrote this expects that I will know it. You know, and then of course I later found out who, you know, who he was. But I'm always thinking of that, that ad when I'm writing for an for a readership that will include people who don't know bluegrass or who are just getting started learning about it. In, in, in your private instruction, I mean, is there typically a, a um, I wouldn't necessarily say a, something like a cookie cutter progression that, that you lead through. I mean, if you want to go to step two, you need to know what step one is. If you go to step three, you need to know what steps one and two are. Well, to a certain extent, I mean, one of the, one of the things that, that I noticed fairly early on you know, most of my students are beginners. Beginners are the bulk of people who decide to take lessons, but there are different kinds of beginners. Um, there's somebody who has never played music in any form whatsoever, never sang in church choir, never took piano lessons as a kid, nothing. And that person, my job is not really just to show, to show them what to do. My job is to show them how to think music, which, you know, is this whole world with its whole internal logic that we've assimilated, but you have to you have to learn how to think along those lines, a whole different set of concepts. Then maybe I'll have somebody who did take piano lessons as a kid, or maybe play some other instrument. Um, and that's a person who already has some of the basic music concepts, rhythm, harmony, pitch, all that kind of thing. And um, so I can skip some of the musical basics and go right on to what we do on the instrument. Then there's the person who has never played banjo, but has played a stringed instrument, guitar for most, most often, violin maybe. Now that's a person who has some concept of how a stringed instrument is laid out. It's a two dimensional grid where most of the notes can be gotten at different places on the fingerboard. And you know, the notes you go in this direction, from one string to another to make the notes higher or lower. And you go in this direction, you know, clo closer to the body or farther away from the body to make the strings higher or lower in the opposite, in, in a different direction. And that's, you know, that's a big part of any string instrument. Um, but it's, it's, you gotta learn how to do that. And then finally, there's the person who has played some banjo, maybe claw hammer style or something and already knows banjo basics. And then there are people who have played some banjo. They, they might know basic chords. Maybe they've learned some, some of the bluegrass right hand patterns, or maybe they've played claw hammer, you know, different, different technique, but they, they know something about how the banjo functions, the nature of the fifth string, which is so distinctive and all that. And each one of those, I start at a different point. Once they get to, once you get to a certain point though, um, there are certain things, if you're playing bluegrass banjo, there are certain things you have to know, certain things about how the right hand works, um, certain licks where if you, if you don't play those licks, it's just not gonna sound like bluegrass. Um, it's not exactly a cookie cutter approach. And it also depends on what does the student wanna do. But, and this is gonna to get to the Wernick method, which you asked about, the most common thing people want to do is they want to play socially with their friends. And starting back a little over 20 years ago, P 
Pete Wernick had, you know, recognized this as great insight that that's why most people who take up a, a bluegrass instrument take it up. They want that social setting. He realized that most bluegrass instruction was not addressing that. You know, you, you, you'd go to a, a banjo teacher and he'd show you how to play Cripple Creek and Foggy Mountain Breakdown. And, but you put a lot of those people in a jam session, they have no idea what to do. They might know a little bit about playing backup. They might not know anything. They don't know how to follow the flow of a song. So Pete broke it down. He says, what are the skills you need to do? You need, you need to know if you're going to play with other people. And he, at the simplest level, you need to be able to change chords on time. You need to be able to know when to change chords, even if you don't know the song. And one of the ways you do that is he, he would show, watch the guitar player. There's always a guitar player, right? So he would say, you know, early on in, in a, a Warnick Method class, you teach even the people who don't play guitar, this is what a G chord looks like on a guitar. When you see this, you play whatever the G chord is on your instrument, stuff like that. You know, we take for granted. <laughs> but he broke it down and he says, look, even if you're just strumming in rhythm and changing chords at the right time while somebody else is playing guitar and singing, you're making music. So there are prerequisites for the Wernick method. Can you, but it's a short list. Can you sort of run over them? Yeah, what they say is uh, you have to know a G, C, D, and A chord on your instrument. Although we sneak in some other chords a little later <laughs> in the class, uh, which is usually not a problem. Um, you have to be able to get your instrument in tune, which nowadays, of course, you know, you can get an electronic tuner and that's relatively simple. Um, I forget what the other, <laughs> oh, oh, you have to have those chords and you have to be able to change from one to the other pretty promptly. In time. That's pretty much about it, you know? Yeah. And, is, and the thing is, it sounds, you know, it sounds, it sounds really simplistic, you know, just, can you, if all you can do is strum along in rhythm and change chords when the guitar player does, you're, you're in, but you can go beyond that. So if you know, you know, like, um, you know, a boom chick strum on the guitar or, uh, or some kind of roll on the banjo that you can do while you're changing chords, then that's a slightly higher level. Um, and not even talking about solos, just playing along while somebody is singing, just playing some form of backup, you know, if you can chop on the mandolin. Um, and then once you've got that, and uh, people who have never done that before, you watch them in the first session of the class, and it's like, it's like the scales have fallen from their eyes. It's, oh my God, I'm playing music. <laughs> and once you get to that point, you've got them hooked. And then they're enthusiastic about, well, okay, but what else can I do? You know, how can I play a melody on my instrument? How can I fake a solo if I don't know it? And you, you know, and there are ways to, to develop those skills, but it all and depends. It is, is singing a prerequisite for the Wernick method or how do you incorporate those that sing with those that do not sing in those, in those sessions? Well, yeah, sing, Pete, when he designed his method, he, he tends to, advises all of his instructors, for the most part, to use songs that have vocals. One of the reasons is most songs that have vocals have much more common chord progressions. Um, instrumentals very often will change, there'll they'll be faster chord changes. You know, think about like, think about playing Cripple Creek where you go to that C for one beat and then you go to the D for one beat or, well, it, not, it wouldn't be in the key of G, but you know what I mean. Sure. 
you know, and that's that's a little challenging for a beginner. But, you know, if you get to where you, you get to a, a C chord and you're on that chord for four beats, that's a little before you have to change it again. That's a little easier for them to deal with. The other thing is singing. You know, you can you can get your bearings in a song with vocals in ways that you can. If somebody is stumbling through a, a labored version of, um, you know, Arkansas Traveler or whatever, you might have a hard time telling where they are if, unless they're a really good player. But, you know, you sing, everybody can tell where you are in the song, that, you know. And the point is not to sing well. The point is just to sing. I, I, I seem to recall, I, I, I sort of witnessed a couple of sessions is there, only only one person was allowed to sing lead, no no unison singing? Well, it, it kind of depends on what level the students are at. Um, okay. You know, at, at the most basic level, yeah, if every, you know, there's one person who's kind of the song leader because, look, that's what really happens in a jam session. There's one person that everybody looks to for their cues, and that's usually the person singing lead. But on the choruses, you know, if everybody wants to sing along, if they're real beginners, okay, let them. But then, you know, if you get students who have a little bit more grounding in the, you know, you can talk about basics of harmony, you know, and you can let them know that, well, if somebody's already singing that tenor part, you don't go and sing the tenor part along with them. That just isn't done because there's also a certain amount of imparting uh, standards and practices to, to the students. So they know when they're out, out of the class, which is a very structured environment, and they go to, you know, a local open jam, they know what's expected of people at a jam. You know? Gotcha. Now, uh, understanding that we're recording this during the time of a pandemic, and I, I don't think there are any Wernick Method sessions going going on right now, but in better times, when we get back into better times, what typically is the commitment um, that's required? Um, and and is there, uh, can you sort of outline what the approximate cost might be to a participant? Well, it, it really varies. Uh, one of the things is, you know, Pete has figured out what he, he's found has worked and he's written up, written it up as a guide for instructors. But as far as the structure of the class, individual instructors have wide leeway um, as to how they want to schedule it, how much they want to charge for it. Um, when I do them in the DC area, I've typically done for, for a good number of years, except for this past year, of course, I've done one in the spring and one in the fall, and I've done them on four successive Sundays, four hours each day for, for four weeks. Um, some instructors will do what they call what they call camps, where it's several days in a row, typically over a, a weekend or a long weekend, um, you know, at one location. Um, I forget what was I charging. I was, was I charging one hundred fifty dollars per student for the course. I think that's what I was charging. But you know that'll vary too, depending on um, you know depending on what the market will bear in different parts of the country. And I, I got to say, different parts of the world because there are Warnock Method instructors in I forget like about ten foreign countries. I think maybe not quite that many, but it's quite an approach. It's, uh, actually like, like I mentioned previously, I, I, I witnessed a couple of sessions and I was just, uh, shocked and amazed at the difference in the, uh, musicality be between the time where, where they first come for their first session to where the session ends. It's, it's pretty remarkable. I think. A part of Pete's insight when he first started developing his method was that 
somebody who takes lessons on an instrument goes to a jam session and has no clue what to do is going to get discouraged. That's why that's what leaves guitars and banjos and mandolins gathering dust in closets and under beds. But when you when you get somebody enthusiastic saying to themselves, yeah, I can do this and, you know, get them going out there doing it. What happens? Well, they start they take lessons because they can see where that's where that's taken them. They get better. They go to concerts, they buy CDs, they buy better instruments eventually. Um, and his point is it, it benefits everybody in the bluegrass community. It benefits the students, of course, who enriches their lives. Um, it benefits the teachers, instrument makers, music store owners, concert promoters, everybody involved in the music benefits from having a, a body of enthusiastic, committed amateur pickers. Talk about a younger group now, typically. The Kids Academies, of which you're involved with uh, three or four, I think, by four by my count. Yeah. Or by Iris count, <laughs> actually. Um, it, uh, there, there's another um, methodology that, frankly, sometimes is just uh, amazingly shocking about I see the kids going in on day one, and then I hear uh, on 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 the last day, where typically at many festivals the kids get a an opportunity to spend some time on the big stage and play and sing, um, actually uh, two or three tunes, um, and and the transformation again is uh, sometimes quite emotional. Um, uh, can, can you sort of talk about your methodology, if there is such a thing as a standard methodology on, on kids' academies? Yeah, well, I, I pretty much just follow the model that Brian Wicklin developed for the Gray Fox Bluegrass Festival back around 1999, 2000, thereabouts. Um, and what I, you know, if I had to give the, uh, you know, the 30-second elevator speech, as they say, about a kids' academy, uh, what I say is, if a kid comes away from it remembering nothing except that he had a fun time playing music with other kids, we've done our job. You know, so we show them stuff on their instrument and, um, you know, and we get kids of varying skill levels, but it's really about getting kids having, having a, a positive association emotionally with the music and with the community. And are they typically structured pretty much the same? That is, you have a group, and then you've got breakouts with all the stringed instruments. I mean, all the stringed instruments. They're all stringed instruments. All the fiddles together, all the banjos together, all the guitars together, and then bring them back eventually. Well, the, the ones that I work at, that's how we do it. That's the model that Brian Wicklin came up with. And, you know, it's much more structured than um, the Wernick Method classes I was talking about. Uh, because part of our mission at, at the festivals I do this at is to take any interested kid, as long as the kid has an instrument in hand, um, we'll take them on. So we get kids who have never played the instrument before. We get kids who have been playing for a couple of years. And the interesting challenge is um, what can you show this kid over the course of the weekend that will make him feel he's, a, he's done something, he's learned something, that he, that he can be there and participate on the stage. And for some kids, it's just strumming in rhythm. For some you know, kids who have a little more skills developed, 
you know, you can show them like real, real licks or, you know, how to, how to take the licks they know and string them together into a break. Uh, a lot of times we get some of our, some of the most advanced kids are the kids on fiddle because, you know, there's all sorts of school orchestra programs and Suzuki and, you know, a lot of a whole tradition of instructing kids. Oh, and, and different sized instruments, a, a little kid, you know, an, an eight year old with a, with a banjo, it's hard to find a, a kid sized banjo, honestly. Uh, but we, we try to kind of size them up at the very first session. What is this kid capable of and what can I show this kid that will make him feel he's participating. And how do you deal with the, with the vocal component of kids Academy? Well, it, it kind of depends on, on the size of it. The, the one at Delaware Valley is, is one of the smaller ones. Um, one at Gettysburg is kind of varied, kind of in the same league. Joe Val a little bigger and Gray Fox has gotten huge, but Gray Fox, I don't, I don't run that one. I just teach banjo at it. Um, but with the, the bigger it gets, the less you can deal with solo singers. It's that, like, that is a parrot, by the way, in the background. Oh yeah. That's, that's, yeah. That's a buddy. He's got kind of his repertoire. You might hear him say, uh, Ni hao in Chinese, you know, hello. My brother. Uh, anyway, uh, how large a con uh, of a congregation do you guys have at the Gray Fox? Approximately, oh, there's there's some years where it's been well over a hundred kids. Holy cow! Yeah, and you know, typically not a lot of banjos. You know, one year we had like about nine banjos. That might have been about the most. Tons and tons of fiddles, a lot of guitars, of course. Um, decent number of mandolins. Uh, you know, to the point where for fiddles they have. Oh, I don't know, five teachers maybe, you know, and they divide them up into levels and, and stuff. Um, usually I've just been the only banjo teacher. One, once or twice I've had to pull in somebody to assist me. Um, but yeah, you were, you were asking about singing though. Um, you know, we'll have the kids sing all together, you know, or may, and maybe we'll teach them just, you know, harmony part for the choruses. Um, it's also a little different at, at Joe Val and at Delaware Valley, those are both three-day festivals. So for that, I'll pick two tunes to work on over the course of the weekend. And we really only have like, a, you know, it's just so much time to work them up. At um, Gray Fox and at Gettysburg, those are four-day festivals, an extra day, three tunes to work on. Um, you can go into a little more depth on the tunes that you do work on also. So you got to tailor it to the, um, you know, to the situation. And uh, and for the uh, for the adults, um, there's sort of a, a total immersion um, uh, program that you are involved with as director, I believe, at the Augusta Heritage Bluegrass Week. Well, actually, my my title is coordinator, and there's three of us: me and Neil Brown, who plays with the band Only Lonesome, mm -hmm. and Mary Burdett, who is um, one of the people who runs Gray Fox. Uh, the three of us are jointly are coordinating. Um, and there, you know, there's a whole bunch of music camps that um, work at least partially in the bluegrass world. There's, you know, Swananoa gathering down, down in Asheville, North Carolina. There's Ashokan up in New York state, um, a whole bunch out West. So uh, Augusta Bluegrass Week, the Augusta Heritage Center is a traditional arts organization that's under the aegis of Davis and Elkins College down in West Virginia. 
And they started having these theme weeks back in, I think, the 1980s. Uh, Bluegrass week, old time week, blues week, you know, different kinds of roots music and arts, you know, dance week, vocal week. And a lot of times two or three of them will run concurrently on campus. Um, I've been involved in Bluegrass Week since 2004, first as an instructor, both on banjo and, and bass, then as a staff musician, that's kind of, you know, the person that, hey, you know, if a fiddle instructor needs somebody to play rhythm guitar for the class to work with, you call a staff musician, that kind of thing. And um, then since 2013, Mary and Neil and I have been the, um, the coordinators of it. That means we decide who we want on staff, uh, you know, we contact them, uh, we tweak the program. It's basically the same same structure every year, but we tweak a few things, decide, you know, what what we tried that didn't work as well as we thought it would and, you know, do something different. And then once we're there, we're the, um, you know, we're always just running around making sure the teachers have what they need in their classrooms that, you know, uh, that all the logistics are, are working out. And what level of uh, students uh, do you accept at Augusta? And by the way, uh, uh, we, we didn't mention exactly where uh, the uh, Heritage Bluegrass Week is, is held. Yeah, it's, it's at um, Davis and Elkins College in Elkins, West Virginia. And, you know, I don't know how widely geographically spread out your listeners are. I imagine a lot of them are in the Washington area. It's about a four and a half hour drive from Washington. From my home in Alexandria, it's always been about four and a quarter hours for me. Beautiful drive, by the way. You go past Seneca Rocks and up across several passes in the Appalachians. Um, but yeah, it's we, we have most of the instruments that we offer classes in, we have beginner, intermediate, and advanced. If you look at the website, it'll, it'll have, it'll say a beginner, level is not total beginner. You're expected to know at least a little bit about your instrument, you know, maybe a few chords or whatever. But, you know, we have some people who are pretty, pretty much at the beginning of the path. And uh, we're doing it a little differently this year, partly, partly because we don't know if we're going to be doing it live or if we're going to have to go to a virtual option like we did last year. But they're, they're, the Augusta organization is restructuring the, the summer weeks so it's, um, it's going to be a little scaled down. I mean, even if it's live, it's probably not a good idea to have as many people there in one place. And, you know, probably at least not until next year. Um, so, yeah, we offer, uh, we offer for banjo, guitar, mandolin, and fiddle, we offer typically the have been offering the three levels, beginner, intermediate, and advanced. Bass and dobro, just don't get enough students to be able to divide it up like that. So, um, you know, there's just one class for all of them, but sometimes those instructors will bring in staff musicians to help, you know, coach the more beginner level um, players and one class for vocals also. And at, um, at Augusta, is there an opportunity for uh, after uh, instrumental instruction to form ensembles? Is, is that part of the program? Well, we haven't, we haven't been very structured about that. I mean, certainly there's a lot of jamming and the students tend to find each other out. Um, a lot of people come back year after year and develop, you know, strong friendships, um, you know, and, and little jamming groups that, you know, they, they join in every year. We, um, 
that's that would be something to, to consider, like working, you know, being a little more structured about grouping students together in, um, into groups. Lori Lewis, back in the 1990s, she was actually the coordinator of the program. And I think she, somebody told me she used to do that. Um, I have to talk to her about that, maybe. And again, assuming that we'll, we're going to be getting in better, uh, better times, but historically, um, uh, uh, folks are traveling from uh, presumably uh, all over the country. Uh, uh, what, what are the approximate costs per individual for the week? You know, I should know that, but I don't because I don't have to pay it myself. But okay. you can go, you can go onto the the website um, augustaheritagecenter.org, and you know, and find out about not just Bluegrass Week, but all of the different the different programs that they have going on there throughout the year. There's something else you you want to uh, you'd like to uh, to touch on. I, I've written a lot for Banjo Newsletter, Bluegrass Unlimited. Um, I was contacted a couple of years ago by um, Wayne Erdson. A lot of people may know his, his books. He, has, he and his daughter published books for the folk in bluegrass and old-time community. And I have mostly finished um, Music Theory for the Complete Ignoramus. For the Complete Ignoramus is kind of the one of a brand that they have on a lot of their books. And... Um, that's kind of fallen by the wayside as um, Wayne's daughter has been raising her. Well, her child is now is over one year old. So, but you know, I hope I hope to get that nailed down pretty soon. And I'm doing some research for what I hope will be a book um, on a bluegrass-related topic. But I don't want to I don't want to jinx that right now. Okay. Well, uh, before we get out of here, uh, can I plug myself? Absolutely. Have at it. I have been teaching not quite as much, but still, it's mostly what I do um, online via Zoom and Skype. And um, people can reach me if they're interested in banjo or guitar or bass lessons um, at iragitlin.com. It's just my name, you know, both words together, no punctuation.com. Uh, you know, can contact me through the contact page there. And you can also check out, I have a, a tiny bunch of things up on YouTube. You know, if you search for me, you'll you'll find that a couple of banjo instrumentals, a couple of guitar instrumentals, and a, a clip of the um, Augusta Bluegrass Week coordinators and staff musicians at at the um, the big staff concert. That's that's kind of neat. That was Ira Gitlin in a wide-ranging conversation with Howard Parker. You can find Ira on his YouTube channel and at iragitlin.com. Bluegrass Stories is hosted on SoundCloud.com and can be streamed on SoundCloud, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and KatieDaily.com. I'm Katie Daly, and as always, thanks for listening to Bluegrass Stories. Mm -hmm.